The title for this evening's talk is Choice and its Fallacy. What do I mean by that? But first, let me just put something aside. Choice very often is used as a catchword to signify the rejection of authoritarianism. And as such, I think it's a powerful and use, useful statement. I am free to choose. That's important. But this is not the context in which I'm going to speak tonight. What I'm referring to tonight is a very pervasive belief, myth, that the key to our happiness is our ability to make the right choices at each juncture. It seems to be quite uncontroversial. And in some areas it may be, until we really get into the thick of it. Because what this, this myth really assumes is that we have a wide variety, an infinitude of choices available to us. And, and the market is very keen to foster this belief. And having this infinitude of choices available to us, all we need to do to construct for ourselves the good life is to pick and choose. Shopping is a consummate area, arena, sorry, for this. We construct who we think who we think we are. I see that in my grandchildren in extreme form. Through the clothing we buy, through the books we buy, the electronic gadgets, the car, the home, you name it. Then in another area, not now, just ordinary shopping. When our children, and in our case our grandchildren, reach a certain age, the whole faith seems to be dependent upon which college they choose to go to. Of course, it starts also with grammar school, I mean, kindergarten, whatever. But it reaches a, a peak with the college. I hear my uh, oldest daughter talk about designer college. That's not a, not a college of studying design. It's a designer college like a designer jeans, you know. 
that's the categories in which colors fall. And, and so on. We define ourselves, our lives, through the choice of jobs, fair enough, partner, partner, fair enough. But it's more than just the partner, it's, it's a choice, and keep choosing it. Have I got it, the, the right person, person? And allegiances, political, religious, ideological, if we just hit it right, our life will be made. It's, it's forever choosing something from the outside to complete that incompleteness that we sense in ourselves. The other day I was just uh, paging through a catalog of this institution, which is a good institution, indeed, a, a yoga center called Kripalu. The name of one of the offerings, create the life you want. So, in whichever area, we go down the aisles of life's supermarket, piling up goodies in our cart. All pretty perishable anyway. They don't last, not very much. And when we get home with them, whatever joy they brought is very short-lived. Still, we keep doing it. Behind our choosing frenzy, very often, there's a propaganda machine ready to exploit our gullibility, at times able to persuade us to become addicted to nicotine, to alcohol, even to shopping, to get of our heads in debt, and to vote for rotten politicians. And we we keep falling for that. Why do we, do we fall for this blatant deceit? I think the answer is that we fall for that because we are we're waiting for this. Because there's an, an internal machine manipulated by the eye that is delighted to collude with the external one. Among the bits of junk mail I got, I, this one caught my attention. It's um, a picture of a man and a woman that nobody can see from there, but I describe it anyway. And there's, a, there's some, some wrinkles here, you know, getting aged. Some things are not working very well. But there's a smile, and that's working very well. And that's where the, the people who put out this ad 
uh, want to get credit is, uh, is for a resort. And the resort is called exclusive resorts. So they're smiling because they're going to a resort that's exclusive for others cannot come. And, and that tickles itself to death. <laughs> the, the, the eye is totally involved in this. If, if the things that I offer go its way, it jumps in the bandwagon. And then, of course, it's only the eye is only too eager to get credit for, wow, look at the restaurant I discovered that nobody else in my circle have seen, you know. We're <laughs> talking about this, the Aventine. And, uh, and there's this uh, sports car that nobody else has. And then there are all kinds of things, you know, in the language one talks about a, a trophy wife, a trophy wife, a wife, but it's a trophy, I, I suppose a trophy husband's too, you know, of whatever, lovers, whatever. But uh, even when things don't work out, even when things don't work out, and, uh, and the, I decides to take the blame for things, even in that, in finding itself at fault, having been derelict in its choosing, the I gains solidity. Because there is solidity in being able to, to portray oneself even as a loser, even as a failure. One continues to be a central character of this play. So, in the end, you see, although we may think that choice is about, choice is about the things that we, we want to have or we get, in the end, it's not about that. It's about the I creating the illusion that it is in control. Now, this game is bound to fail. Inevitably. Inevitably. It, it just cannot fulfill us when we do things moved by this kind of uh, uh, frenzy of choosing. Any of you who has an opportunity to observe teenagers, thank God I, I have this some distance from them as their grandchildren, <laughs> you can see how, how they get carried away by these things. And you could see around the corner, it couldn't work, you know. So when, when this whole thing begins to fail, 
if we're still reluctant to, to open up to the truth of things, just, just be with the truth of things, it may not be easy. We prefer to go to another myth. This time a myth that's just the opposite. Namely, the myth of fate. Myth of fate. Sure. By embracing the myth of faith, instead of crediting the outcomes to the self, we credit the outcomes to the workings of an supposed external, all-powerful force, agency. At times, castigating us for supposedly for things we've done, or rewarding for being us for being good, like uh, parents are supposed to do. In in Eastern traditions, the catchword for this is karma. This has been the this is fated karma is a prevailing view in, in many Hindu um, groups of Hindu religion and even in a number of Buddhist groups, Buddhist traditions, but clearly that is not what the Buddha understood. Let me just quote from the Buddha. This is from the scriptures, the Samyutta Nikaya, actually. It says, some feelings arise based on flame, flame, you know, some kind of a body fluids that are in, in India, traditionally this, this, this is a, a a force in, a living force in our body. Or arise based on internal winds, winds in the body, air in the body. Or based on an imbalance of bodily humors, liquids, whatever. Or arise from the change of seasons. Or from uneven care of the body. From assaults or from the results of karma, or karma. That some feelings arise from the result of karma, one can know for oneself, and everybody understands that to be true. So any contemplatives or sages who are of the doctrine and view that whatever an individual feels, pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain, is entirely caused by what has done before, overstep what they themselves know and what is agreed on by people in general. In other words, the Buddha is saying that all these kind all these various inferences that affect 
in this example, our body. And to blame that on a fated agency that can sort of fate us to be ill, for instance, in this moment, it doesn't hold water. So, there's no, for the Buddha, intractable predestination by an outside agency. What, what there is, is cause and effect. Karma, in fact, simply, in the understanding of the Buddha, is a variety of causes having an effect. An open process, not a, a process closed by something being fated, in which we all participate. So, if we'd not caught in the polarity of choice, and if we're not caught in the polarity of fate, where do we go? I propose that we go consistent with all the teachings of the Buddha to the middle way. A uh, uh, middle way, very clearly, is not a wishy-washy halfway. It's something else. Something that contains this both aspects. First of all, we need to drop all pretense that there is a willer. An aut autonomous eye behind each action we undertake, behind each choice we make. And here, once again, the Buddha is very clear. He says, it's again in the scriptures, for a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need, need for an act of will. And then he puts in quotes, that is, such as, May freedom from remorse arise in me. Close the quotes. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arrives, arises in a person endowed with virtue consummate in virtue. So, cause and effect, a natural process, doesn't need a willer to determine it. And he goes on, for a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will, such as, may joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. And he goes on. For a joyful person, there is no need of, for an act of will, may rapture arise in me. It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. 
For a rapturous person, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there is no need for an act of will, such as, may I experience pleasure. It is in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. I'm sorry. So, we must drop all pretense that everything starts with an act of will, and we must drop all pretense that our actions are predetermined by fate. The middle way focus instead not focus not so much on which outcome is going to be selected from all the possible ones, but actually puts emphasis in this in not in in the outcome itself, but how does it happen? In other words, what matters in truth is not so much which house we dwell in, but how how we live in it, whichever it is. It matters not so much who we partner with, forgive me, <laughs> but how we relate to him or her. It matters not so much which college we select to go to for ourselves, our children, our grandchildren, or whatever, but how ready are we to receive what this college offers? It matters not so much getting our favorite candidate elected, but how the candidate that prevails and ourselves continue to affect the political process. All this, of course, not to deny that selection of a house, a partner, a college, a candidate matters. But to remind us that the process that matters is much more than just selected. Just selecting. It's really getting involved. Of course, we do need a, a navigational chart. I mean, if you're driving here from wherever, New Jersey, wherever, uh, New York State, whenever, wherever, you, you may need a, a map uh, or some kind of uh, help to choose the right uh, junctures. Come to a retreat, 
we do have a schedule to indicate what to do at which time. In fact, also in a retreat, we do have a guidance of behavior, which goes under the name of the five precepts. I'll just take a moment to, to highlight them. You've been to these retreats before, you've heard them many times. The five re precepts are do not kill, and in this context, they include do not kill, kill bees or bugs or whatever you encounter. They include do not steal, that is to say, do not take what is not freely given, a pretty obvious rule of uh, conviviality. They include the general precept is right speech. Here is uh, largely no speech except in certain circumstances, and that's uh, very appropriate. They include no sexual misconduct. Again, and this is a general um, precept, and in, in the context of the retreat, just like there's no speech, there's no sexual activity. And in no way are we saying there's anything wrong with speaking in other circumstances or having sexual activity in other circumstances, but here is not conducive. And finally, no intoxication. Treat your body well, don't take alcohol or, or any other things that, that fall in that category. The important thing is that when this appeared to be just uh, commandments not to do this, not to do that, what really matters here is to use them as an internal guideline. Let me take a moment talking about speech. And I mentioned that before the talk. As you begin to reduce and bring as much as possible to zero the chatter inside your head, you begin to create a space where you can discover and be in touch with things that uh, you couldn't be in touch with while you were talking to yourself. And so in reducing this speech to others, the important thing is to really to create quietude within yourself. I forget, because it's very dramatic. It's hard to describe this. I went to, years ago, I went to a retreat at Gaia House. And there was a guy who came from, in, in England, and there's a guy who came from Spain because a friend had told him that this retreats were fabulous. So he went, 
But the friend forgot to tell him that the silent retreat was silent. It was for a month. And, and you know, Spaniards have this <laughs> reputation for being great talkers, and he was uh, one of those. And and I and he was kind of silent. But I I passed him so many times in the corridor. His mouth was like that. It just, you could see that he was bursting, you know, to say <laughs> So, that's not what the guideline means. But of course he was unprepared, I, I sympathize with him. At the end, oh, he talked and talked and talked and talked. Couldn't stop. So it's not a question of a muscle. In fact, I, I like the way Mary Oliver puts it. Somebody was kind enough to pass this book to me. It's a poem, of course. We here in my head, language keeps making its tiny noises. How can I hope to be friends with the white, hard white stars whose flaring and hissing are not speech but a pure radiance? How can I hope to be friends with the yawning spaces between them, where nothing ever is spoken. Tonight, at the edge of the field, I stood very still and looked up and tried to be empty of words. Once, deep in the woods, I found the white skull of a bear, and it was utterly silent. And once a river otter in a steel trap, and it too was utterly silent. What can we do but keep on breathing in and out, modest and willing and in our places. Listen, listen, I'm forever saying, listen to the river, to the hawk, to the hoof, to the mockingbird, to the jack in the pulpit. And then I come up with a few words, like a gift. Even as now. And so, we try to navigate skillfully to do what's appropriate, 
while dropping the centrality of choice and fate, while dropping the centrality of I. What guides then our actions? The middle way invites us to see the myriad of influences participated. I find it helpful to describe this guidance as coming from, for lack of a better word, a guiding council. Let me use it. Not an ideal word, but you know. At least it hasn't been used, <laughs> so it hasn't been spoiled. A guiding counsel, both inner and outer, but primarily inner. It's not a matter of getting all your friends together and getting them to tell you what to do. You can do that too, but really getting all the aspects of yourself and listening to them. To, to listen to that chorus of voices that reaches, largely, as I said, from inside. Sure, that some voices, even from inside, may try to deceive us. And of course, there's the propaganda from the outside. But if we find a way of being in tune to the truth, we, we can tell wisdom from deceit. We begin to tell wisdom from deceit. We're not that dumb, you know, after all. Let, let, let me give you a few examples, just in instances. One, a very simple and obvious one, that concerns particularly, particularly the, the bodily part of ourselves. Riding a bicycle. Riding a bicycle. Where do we get the guidance to know, to lean this way or that way? I mean, when we don't know how to do it, we fall very easily. And then we learn how to do it. And it's all organic. We listen to the signals of a body. Oh, oh, oh. Sorry. Not even that. The body listens to its own signals. And it happens. And then there are more, more complicated situations. I, I made a note. I was just planning this talk in February, you know, making a very rough outline of what I would say. And then the time came when I realized it was Wednesday, and, and we have a sitting group that comes to our home on Wednesday, and the driveway was covered with uh, snow, that a little bit of snow that could become ice, so I went out there to clear the driveway. And, and in that I had to, to listen to voices largely inside me, 
both of the body and the mind. The mind telling me these lovely people who are going to come and I don't want them to have an accident. And, um, and the body was telling me also I wanted to do a little bit of exercise and the, and the eyes was telling me that uh, sometimes it didn't want to be cracked. And, and then there's also the, the age of my body getting tired. And so I explored all this. And it wasn't very difficult, you know, to know how far to go and when to quit. It's not simple. If I just listen. Now, if I don't listen, I end up with a backache because I work too hard. Or I didn't do anything. I lay down uh, watching TV or whatever it is that one does. And but it's possible to, to listen to all of this. A more precise and perhaps uh, important experience of this guidance council uh, was my experience last November where I sat for a month at the forest refuge in it's an institution connected with IMS in Barry, Massachusetts, a lovely place and um, where you, you sit with uh, no external structure, no schedule in fact, just the meal times to remember. And so again it's it's quite a a challenge do I sit do I walk huh? what do I do so I made a sketch of a schedule and I kept up with it and um, then I, at times I sit and so I with my breath and I let it follow its own rhythm. That is again, you know, the guiding counsel of the breath. I don't have to will it this way or will it that way. But what stood out for me, but it's really made a tremendous impact on me, was what happened during the walking. Because I got to a point where I really didn't have to use my will at all. I didn't have to tell myself how fast or how slow to walk or what rhythm to use. It just took over. It just happened. It just knew exactly. All I had to do was watch it. I, meaning that more obvious part of myself that, that looked at things and he was watching. It's amazing. Sometimes I walk so slowly. I pause. Or, or at the end of each step, I, I mean, each walking period was a different thing. 
and it was totally and absolutely what it had to be. Nothing to do with choice, nothing to do with predetermined. It just happened because of all these influences were allowed to play. So I'll talk a little bit more about this on Sunday in a different context. A couple of more examples, if you can bear with me. This uh, next example concerns what I'd call the most significant selection we are confronted in the course of our lives, perhaps. That is to say, the, the choice, if you wish, the selection, if you wish, of a person who we are going to live with, who is going to be our partner. When we talk about this, uh, we don't talk about choosing a partner, do we? We have the, the wisdom to say, hey, I fell in love. I fell in love. And, and of course, we may use that word uh, inappropriately, but most of the time, it means exactly what it says. I looked up in a dictionary to fall. And the Oxford Dictionary says, to come into a specified state by chance naturally. That's what's meant. It's not falling down. It's to come organically to state. And this falling, in that sense, takes place primarily inside, in the intimacy of our being. The other person is largely the trigger. It, it can become very involved with the other person, surely not. I'm not dismissing the other person. But the thing that really matters to what I'm talking about. The person is the trigger. And and what the guiding counsel or whatever you call it in us needs to do here is to use the opportunity to make us open, to make us vulnerable, to make us available. And that is the miracle. That's the miracle. And it has little to do with choice. No matter how good the choice of the other person may be. And it has everything to do with our own inner resources.
My last example I cannot, uh, just going to stop there, but this morning in the mail I got this issue of Turning Wheel, which is a Buddhist Peace Fellowship publication. Whatever, it doesn't matter too much. And but there's a, there's a lovely article by Ikeda Nash, I don't know, but those of you who, who read the turning, turning Wheel probably familiar because he writes often then. And um, she talks about um, being pregnant in 1988, and uh, for that pregnancy she felt that the only thing she could do is to get an abortion. a few parts of the article. She says she lives in San Francisco. Uh, I did get as far as opening the San Francisco yellow pages and finding the number of a women's clinic. But every time I tried to phone the number, I found myself paralyzed. I found myself paralyzed. Paralyzed. It was almost funny to me. I'd stand by my friend's phone, staring at it, and willing my arm to move. Nothing would happen. I felt like a large stone or a or a sack of wet sand. After some days of this, I accepted that no longer was my life solely my own. Embryo Joshua, in fact, Joshua is a teenage boy now. Embryo Joshua, although small, was now my co-pilot so to speak. And together we seem set to barrel right over Niagara Falls. Now, this is nothing to do with her political position. In fact, uh, she says, to my surprise, I now can empathize deeply with the feelings of pro-life activists and voters at the same time that I write my senators to protect Roe and Wade, Roe versus Wade. So, I mean, it's nothing to do with the position. It's just something that, to her great surprise, happened to her. I think this is a testimony of the power of what I've been calling the guiding powers. So, to sum up, whenever we open up to this organic guidance in whatever area of our lives, from selecting a partner to pacing our steps or whatever, the sway of the eye dwindles. 
the eye that was behind that telephone telling the kid and asked to call because she had figured out that she couldn't possibly make it in the world under her circumstances and would die, I tell you, with a child. And yet the sway of the eye dwindles. We connect instead to all aspects of our inner and outer life, receptive and responsive to all, including our own deep wisdom. Let us sit for a moment in silence, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.